Good morning. Thank you all for being here today. So today we're going to be in James chapter 5, if you turn there in your Bibles with me. I'm going to read our passage, James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20, the end of the book. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another, and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Brethren, if any one among you wanders from the truth, and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. This passage is often used to support the idea that miraculous healings can come to Christian believers through the church as long as there's enough effective faith in the prayers. I would like us to take a look at this passage and see what it's really talking about and then to re-examine our priorities and focuses as to why this passage is so often struggled with even among many commentaries and people who study the Bible often. So let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for today, your day, the Lord's day. Thank you for bringing us here. Thank you for giving us this scripture. We pray you would give us hearts to understand it and ears to hear it, and you'd be working in us that we may align our priorities, our focus, and our goals with your will, Lord. And when our will is aligned with your will, that you would be able to work through us effectively. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, what kind of healing should we expect from God? There's a very clear promise of healing of some kind here. A lot of people are sick. That's part of living in this world. Can we expect healing from being a part of the church? Should we expect God to heal us from our physical ailments? Is there something more going on here? That's what we're going to be discussing today. So first, I'll draw your attention to our first verse, 13. Circumstantial communion with God. We have, in the lead-up to this section, three different responses to God, all forms of prayer. And they're all based on our circumstances in life. So we know from other passages of Scripture, like Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 through 18, that we're to be continually in prayer with God. That Scripture says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So we, te we see that the Christian is to constantly be maintaining contact and relationship with God through prayer. The beginning of this passage gives us some circumstances in which a different prayers are appropriate. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. So here we have a response to suffering or affliction. Now this is everything that we struggle in day-to-day -day life. The near context of this passage indicates struggling with the trials of this life, persecutions, uh, wicked 
people in the world. So it really encapsulates everything broken in the world that we still have to walk through. Affliction is normal for the believer. We have to have that grounded before we can move on and have a right understanding of faith, prayer, and healing. So I'll direct you just a few chapters back to James chapter 1 where he begins his epistle. Now after his introduction, verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. I'll let you guess what that word for perfect is, uh, <laughs> as we've been studying in Hebrews. So here we see that not only is affliction and strife and struggle normal in the life of the Christian, but it's necessary and serves a purpose. And that purpose is the trying, testing, proving, and maturing of our faith. Having a right attitude about this will help us to move on, realizing that our struggles through life are not something to be avoided, not something we would pray God would remove us from or back us out of, but that he would bring us through them. Otherwise, we will never mature and grow in our faith. So affliction is normal in the life of the believer, and it's an inescapable reality of life. So since we're looking at sickness, faith, and healing, how does this tie in with affliction? Is this a special circumstance? It's given a special category here. Ordinary sickness falls under the same category as affliction and suffering. It's no different than any of the other struggles that the Christian must face in this life. Just a few verses before the start of our passage here, James in his epistle refers to Job from the Old Testament. And he references him as an example of patience and endurance. If you look at verse 11 of chapter 5, Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So here Job is given an example uh, of someone who we count blessed because he endured the immense trials and sufferings put upon him. One of those was the removal of, of his physical health and he had terrible sickness along with the loss of his entire family and all of his material possessions. So here we see in the example of Job that physical sickness not caused by sin is an ordinary part of struggling through the broken world. So ordinary sickness is a normal affliction. Our next prayerful response, response to cheerfulness and we have the command to sing psalms. Verse 13, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. So when Christians feel well and cheerful and everything's going right in the world and your walk with the Lord is good and you've got a good prayer life and you're reading your Bible every day and things just seem to be going well, you've got everything you need, it's not time to forget God but to thank Him and glorify Him for His provision. How often do you think about ATMs in your day-to-day -day life and your going abouts? I don't think about ATMs ever, unless I need money. And then I am only thinking about ATMs until I get cash I need for whatever reason. This isn't the same way we need to look at God. We're supposed to have that continual communion with God through prayer. And so it's not just, hey God, I need something, 
and then we're checked out. No, we're to continually be in relationship with him, not just when we need something. So when things are going well and we have everything we need, we're still to pray to God, praising him for his goodness and thanking him through singing psalms. So now, is anyone among you sick? How is this different from the first two circumstances? Don't affliction and cheerfulness encompass the entirety of what we experience in life? Things are either going well or they're going poorly. That's really all there is. And if ordinary sickness falls within the category of everyday affliction, how does this sickness warrant a different response in prayer? This is what we're going to study. So this response to sickness has several steps. The first step is the call for the elders in verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. So who are the elders? How do they work? What are they doing? What's going on? Here, why are they being called? Well, we also need to understand what elders are not. Elders are not intermediaries between man and God. And elders is the biblical word. We would also use pastor or bishop. Authoritative teaching in the church with a set of qualifications. They're not an intermediary between man and God. So it's not that you come to church and you listen to your pastor preach because he's got a special connection to God that you don't. And you've got to come to him to get the word of God or in the Catholic church, forgiveness of God or anything like that. We know that that's not the purpose elders serve because we've been studying that Christ fulfills that intermediary role as our great high priest as we've been working through Hebrews. So Christ is our intermediary and we're able to directly commune with God on the day to day because Christ is there as God and man serving as our intermediary. That is why we are able to come to God in prayer. So that's not what the elders are doing here. It also can't be that the elder, elders have a more serious, mature, or effectual faith because the believer is already commanded to pray in affliction and there's no mention of the elders. That's verse 13, is any among you suffering? Let him pray. So if the believer is commanded to pray in every ordinary day-to-day sufferings of life, then it can't be that the elder's faith is going to come fix this problem because the faith of the believer isn't strong enough. That's not what's going on here. However, what elders do function in is a disciplinary role fixing inner church problems and discipling believers. So that must be why the elders are involved here. They're here to correct a problem with leadership, wisdom, and guidance. The next, now that we've sorted out what the elders are doing here, it's, we need to ask who are the sick and what are they sick with? The Greek word for sick here is asthenai. It means feeble, disabled, or sick. There's not too much to put into this word study here. It's used throughout the New Testament to refer to those with some kind of physical ailment. In the Gospels, in the Acts, and in the Pauline epistles. So whatever this sickness is, it must be a real manifested physical sickness. My initial reaction to looking at this passage was, well... Maybe they're sick with some kind of sin or guilt, or this is just a spiritual problem, and it's calling it sickness. Nope, that's not what this word means. This word just means sick. So there's no getting around that, along with all the other common usages in the New Testament. 
However, there's also an underlying sense of a bodily suffering or spiritual cause. Uh, in Further down in the next verse, we have the word camno, which means faint, sick, wearied, or tired. It can also mean dead or near to death. So we have a very severe illness. And the physical aspect is there, but the underlining spiritual driving force and nature of this sickness is present as well. So we're starting to build an idea of what's going on here. Lastly, in this verse, we need to ask, what is the anointing oil or what does it do or mean? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, some people say this is purely a medical thing. So someone is sick, the elders come, they pray in faith, lather him up with oil and he's going to be good to go. There's more going on here. This idea of anointing can have both a special or a common everyday usage. We see in Daniel, when Daniel is fasting after he's had a disturbing vision, he refrains from eating and drinking and he does not anoint his head with oil. So living in the Middle East where it's very dry and dusty, it was kind of a common practice to take olive oil, run it through your hair, sort of like a conditioner. So there's that everyday aspect, use of oil for basically personal hygiene. Anointed can, on the other end of the spectrum can mean a appointing to a position. So throughout the Old Testament, kings were often anointed. Um, the word for Christ comes from the same root of anointed, and the Hebrew Mashiach means the anointed one or God's anointed one. So it can have a very positional and appointed connotation to it as well. And that's to some extent what we have going on here. It doesn't seem to be purely a physical thing. Oh, he just needs some oil on his skin and he'll get better. There's more going on here. And so it's a positional restorative idea. And we will get more into this later and this will become more clear. So first we have the call for the elders. Next, we have covering of sins through faithful prayer. Verse 15. The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So, firstly, how are sins forgiven? Only on the condition of repentance. This is clear throughout the Bible. God forgives our sins, not while we're still in rebellion, but when we repent. Meaning, we recognize our sin, we see it as God sees it, and we hate our own sin. So, that must be going on here for sins to be forgiven. And in some way, this sick person must be demonstrating faith and repentance. Repentance in, I need to call for the elders to settle this issue, which is why the elders are involved, and faith that in doing that, they will be healed from whatever is afflicting them. What does this save mean? That's a big question. The word is socia. It means deliver to make well in verse 15 here. And what does raise him up mean? We have the words egeri, which has the connotation of rousing from sleep, from a low position of sitting or laying to standing, from disease or from death. In fact, this word has the same root word as the Greek word for resurrection. So there's a bringing up, healing, restoring, and making whole. There's a lot going on here that's more than just physical wellness. It's an entire spiritual well-being with a physical aspect to it. Excuse me. So 
This means delivered from sickness and the immediate consequences of sin, not necessarily saved, as we would say, in a born-again condition. There's a lot to pick apart here, and there is repentance of sins, but for other reasons, this must be a believer within the church body who has committed some unrepentant sin and now must come in confession to the elders to be restored to right position within the church, which is signified by the anointing oil. Some reasons we know this. Throughout this epistle, James addresses brothers, even in his very staunch criticism and admonition against sin and some of the practices that were occurring in the early church at the time. He refers to the church as brothers and those among the brothers. We also have the illustration of Elijah and his prayer and his intercession for Israel that helps us to understand this better. So this isn't someone coming, not a believer, into the church being saved. This is someone who's a part of the church coming to repentance for a previously unrepentant sin. And then he's restored to health and position within the church body. Something we've got here is a guarantee. The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. This is an absolute. There's no getting around this. This isn't a maybe he'll be healed, maybe he'll get better, maybe God will forgive you. No, there's a promise and a certainty here, which helps us to understand it. If God is already promised to forgive sins of the people who come to him in repentance, then he can promise to heal someone when the cause of their sickness is their sin. That's what we've got going on here. God doesn't promise that he will heal us from every physical malady that comes upon our life. And we know that by looking at the life of Job, for example. We're to endure those daily afflictions of which sickness is one of many. But this is something different. It's tied to sin, and there must be confession and repentance for the guarantee of the Lord to be at play here. 1 John chapter 5, 14 through 15, I'll read quickly. Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And the key there is, ask anything according to his will. If you'll turn just to James chapter 4, verse 3. You ask and you do not receive, because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. I like the wording of the old King James a little better. It says, Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Has a nice tone to it, right? <laughs> so, this idea is that God doesn't just answer whatever prayer we have if it's not in accordance with us with his will. Another way to look at it is God doesn't answer our prayers when we pray for things that aren't good for us. If I pray really, really hard that my one of my professors is struck by lightning so I don't have to take a test, God's not going to answer that because I'm not praying, one, for what's right for me, or two, out of love for another person. So it's not just asking anything we want. We can't ask according to the lusts of our flesh. We have to ask according to God's will. And I know what we're all thinking. Well, that's really helpful. Thank you. Yes. 
all right, I'll just pray according to God's will and, and he's just going to answer. Yep, whatever God wants to happen, I'll pray for that. And he's already said he'll do that. So that's great. Thank you. That That's really helpful. And we joke because we all feel like that sometimes. But yes, it is really helpful to know that God is going to do what he's already said he's going to do. And we when we pray for God to do what he's said he's going to do, it's going to happen. And in that, we align our will with God wills and we with God's will and we can pray effectively. So we see sins are forgiven on the condition of repentance. This is exercised here in the calling of the elders. The sickness is removed because it has accomplished its goal. Now, we may be wondering, well God won't God perform some healings, even if it's not due to sin, doesn't God sometimes restore people to health? And yes, he does. It's not a guarantee, it's not a promise, and it's not something that we should expect. The question we're asking today is what kind of healing should we expect from God? So no, it's not wrong that to pray and ask God that he would bring you good health or restore your health or maintain your good health, but it is wrong to expect it or even demand it of God, God, you need to heal me from this physical ailment. No, he does not. And in fact, he's using it for the maturing of your faith. And so getting out of what is growing you is not good for you. And God will not answer that prayer in the way you ask it if it's not something that's going to be good for you. <clears throat> so here, the sickness is removed because it has accomplished its goal. The goal of this sickness is to bring the sinner to repentance from a sin that's been unconfessed, unrepentant, undealt with, they have to call the elders to them and say, I am in sin here. I need help from this. Otherwise, I'm going to die. Then the affliction is removed because it has brought the person to repentance. And that is the goal of the affliction being present. Next, verse 16. The next step in our process, confessional prayer for restoration. <clears throat> Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. This sums up everything we've just take, we've just looked at, and it adds a good deal of clarity. We see two purpose conditional clauses here, meaning a reason for something happening. We have confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another. And both of those are for the purpose of healing, that you may be healed. So we have what must happen and the purpose. So both of these are conditional. Because confession of sins is required for the healing, that shows us that sin was the cause of the sickness. There's no way around it. It's a cause and effect, and here it's directly tied. I had to fix the radiator of my old pickup truck. I knew it needed a new radiator because it was overheating and leaking coolant. I was like, yep, probably need a new radiator. How did I know that was the problem? Because I fixed the radiator and I stopped having the problem. Therefore, it was correctly addressed. If I had those symptoms and I put on new brake pads, would have not have addressed the problem because they're not linked. The brake pads have nothing to do with the temperature of your coolant. So bring this idea of diagnosis to this. If confessionalism is required for the healing of this sickness and God has promised he will forgive sins that are confessed, then the sickness must be caused by the guilt and the sin that has not been repented of yet. 
The next conditional thing we have here is pray for one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of the elders are required for the healing. So what this means is you can't be, oh, I'm sick. This is probably a God thing due to my unrepentant sin. I'll pray to God and repent of my sin and then God will heal me. That's not what it says. You have to call for the elders. And that confession and repentance has to be made public. If this is a pattern and a way of life of hidden sin, it has to be dealt with publicly. Otherwise, it's not really repentance because you'd rather just keep it to yourself because you haven't dealt with it. You're not willing for other people to see it. So here we know there's repentance because this person has opened up all their wrongdoings and showed it to the leaders in their church. That is real repentance. So, by now, we've built a strong case that this is a real physical sickness, illness. It's been caused by guilt and sin in a person's life that they haven't repented of. Spiritual underlying cause with a physical manifestation. It's time to back up a little bit and ask, why is this passage misused so much? Why do so many people say that this passage teaches that the elders in the church can heal you from any physical malady that may come upon you. And looking in our hearts, why do we want so badly to be healed and avoid the physical sufferings, including illness and sickness, that come through living this life? For two reasons. We're misfocused and we're impatient. <clears throat> we're inventing a promise that God never made. God never promised that he would heal us from all our physical sicknesses, illnesses, or from any other affliction that he would simply take, it, take us out of it if we prayed. Job was praying and struggling with all his afflictions the whole time through, but it wasn't until the end when God was ready to restore him and he'd matured through his suffering that the affliction was removed. So why would we expect this from sickness? <clears throat> We're misfocused. And we're impatient. Let's turn to John chapter 5, verses 24 through 29, and see if we can be refocused on what God has promised us. So here we are inventing a promise that God has never made and ignoring the much better promise that He is guaranteed. No wonder we're misfocused. The resurrection of the body and eternal glory is a much better thing to pray for, ask for, and look forward to than physical healing of this body which will die anyway. John chapter 5, verses 24 through 29. This is Jesus talking. Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has also given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. There's a lot to deal with here 
but I hope it will bring us patience and better focus. We see that the believer is promised resurrection of the body. And we are warned that the unbeliever will have resurrection to judgment. If we don't deal with that first, we're not going to be able to move on. If you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, if you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ to die on the cross, to pay for the penalty of your sins, which you rightly should be paying, but he's paid in your stead, if that's not where your trust, hope, and faith is in, then you are going to be resurrected to the judgment, to condemnation, to damnation. <clears throat> you must place your hope in Jesus Christ paying for your sins and looking forward, future glorification and resurrection of the body. That's your only hope. Everyone will be resurrected. But will you be resurrected to a body of condemn condemnation, judgment, and damnation, or to the resurrection of glory? <clears throat> That's the first hard step we have to deal with. There's eternal punishment for those who do not trust in Jesus. And it's not an obliteration, an ending, lack of consciousness, because otherwise, why would they be resurrected to the condemnation after they've already died? No, this is very serious, and we can't get around this. And it weighs heavy on me to preach it, but I know I have to. <clears throat> Once we have that, this understanding, we can look to the hope of the believer, the resurrection of the body. We have this very strange idea in normal American Christian culture that you die and you go to heaven and then you f float around on a cloud strumming a harp for all eternity. And no wonder that many people aren't terribly excited about that idea. But there's so much more that would be many, many sermons worth of material to cover explaining all that's that's promised us in in glory and in the future but the resurrection of the body we're not going to be just disembodied spirits floating around we're going to receive a new body one that's not broken one that doesn't get sick one that doesn't struggle with all the sinful temptations that we must trial through every day christian if that's not your hope and you're hoping that god will give you short temporary physical health in this life, you are misfocused. And a refocusing will help you to move forward with purpose. Think about Lazarus, who Jesus raised from the dead. He died again. He's not alive anymore. Jesus raised him from the dead, one of the most incredible, incredible miracles of the New Testament. And he was killed or died in some way later. So, if people were coming to Jesus and looking at him, hoping, oh, I hope you'll, you know, just keep me healthy forever or give me some amount of physical health in this life. It's got to be the future eternal resurrection that our hope is in and not in a temporary healing. And those were signs and they demonstrated the glory and the power of God and point forward to that future healing in totality. But they themselves are an end's a means to an ends and not an ends in themselves. I'd like to share with you a quick story about my great-grandmother, who was a very sweet lady, and she passed away this February. My wife and I, we went down with my grandmother to go see her in uh, December. So we drove down there and, and got to reconnect with her. I hadn't seen her in oh, probably 10 years or so, and she was getting pretty close 
to the end. And she wasn't necessarily sick. She was bedridden, but she didn't have any disease with a name. It wasn't that she had cancer or tuberculosis or a lethal case of gout or, I don't know, any, any ailment you want to come up with. She was just old and couldn't get out of bed. And her mind was sharp, her eyes were clear, and she could talk, but she was so weak she could barely make the air to get the words out. And she received some great clarity sitting on that bed that would eventually be her deathbed. And I prayed with her, and we read scripture together, and, and we talked. And what she didn't say was, if I could just get a better doctor who would come and heal me so I could get out of this bed, I would be doing great. My life would be wonderful. No, that's, that's not what she said. She said, I'm ready to die. I'm ready to go home. I want to see Jesus. I don't know why it's taking so long. <laughs> she received focus and clarity on her deathbed. She knew she wasn't getting better from this. She was 88 years old. There's no recovering from this one. Her only hope was to let go, die in God's timing, and hope in the resurrection of the body. That's the other thing she said. I want to die. I don't know why it's taking so long. We're going to get new bodies. Now, me saying this to you doesn't mean as much as it did when she said that to me. Now, I've got good health, and I'm young, and hope many of you here do have good health as well. Um, we don't have that kind of focus because God hasn't brought us to our end through our physical sickness and struggling and affliction yet. We're not mature enough to have that kind of focus, but we're going to learn it. The other thing is patience, realizing we're not going to have perfect health in this life. We have to wait for the resurrection of the body and that future health, which will be so much better than even the best health you can experience here. She wasn't always patient. She wanted the end to come. Why is it taking so long? But she learned patience waiting to die. And with a good attitude, loving the people around her, even as she had to be cared for. And in that way, she really shined the light of Christ in her last months. And I was very blessed that I got to interact with her one more time and really get to know her on a much deeper level. So remember my great-grandmother, and I hope... That will add some clarity, focus, and patience to your life. The next step in our process, correcting affliction wrought through faithful prayer. Verses 17 and 18 of James chapter 5. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So is this just a neat example of a faithful prophet of God praying real, real hard and having whatever he prays for happens? Let's find out. We see, looking back at the Old Testament example, that this passage is an almost perfect parallel to the situation we've been studying here. So would you join me in turning to 1 Kings chapter 17? All right. We're going to set the stage a little bit. Ahab is the king in Israel. I'm going to back up a little bit and grab uh, chapter 16, verses 
30. Moving on. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. He took his wife, Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria, and Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hale of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation with Abraham his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Segev, he set up its gates, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. So Ahab is leading the nation of Israel into sin. He was led astray by his wife Jezebel. A little bit of background here. She was the daughter of the king of the Sidonians from the city of Sidon, Sidon, which was in Cana. These were people that the Israelites were supposed to completely remove from the promised land, but they had failed to do so. God had commanded this because they worshipped Baal, who was one of the worst pagan gods of the Middle East, and we see throughout the Old Testament the Israelites being pulled into sin because of this. So Israel was, resposed, was supposed to remove this blight from the land in righteous judgment of God, but they did not. And then down the line here, Ahab marries Jezebel, who is from these people, and she leads him to worshiping her god, excuse me, Baal, and Ahab leads the rest of Israel to worshiping Baal. Jericho was also rebuilt at this time. There's a curse that goes with this. This would have happened in the southern kingdom of Judah, not the northern kingdom of Israel. But we see the attitude at the time was adopting the pagan ideas and beliefs that Israel had been supposed to purge from the land, but they had failed to do so. We also see that Jezebel had killed the prophets of God. So this is the sin that's going on at the time of Ahab, starting chapter 17. And Elijah the Tishbite, uh, the inhabit, inhabitants of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be no dew, nor rain these years, except by my word. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Get away from here, and turn eastward, and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. Elijah predicts the drought. And it happens. Of course, he's a prophet of God, so he's receiving the direct revelation from God. But there's more going on here. This had already been promised by God previously. He had promised that if Israel broke and violated their covenant with him, he would send drought on their land. And if there would be repentance, he would restore rain to the land, break the drought, and there would be restoration. But only if there was repentance from the sin. So God has already explained and described this process and they should have known and Elijah would have known. So there's the falling away. Messenger of God predicts and brings this correcting affliction. Elijah prays for a drought and it occurs. Previously when we were reading our passage in James and we wonder, is this just an example of a really faithful guy praying really, really hard with really effective faith and then whatever he prays for happens or is there more going on? Clearly, there's more going on here. Why would someone pray for drought and then pray for the drought to end? This isn't, doesn't make any sense. Like, you either want drought or you want rain. What's the process going on here? 
It's the affliction that brings to restoration. And when there is repentance, then the affliction is removed because it has accomplished its goal, just like the sick person that we see in James. Imagine taking this as, oh, Elijah was just really faithful, and that was so cool how you did that. Good job, Elijah. Yeah, that was really cool when you prayed, and, and there was drought for three and a half years. That was great. Yeah, we, we all felt closer to God then. That was really cool how you were so faithful to make sure that all the grass and the entire land dried up, and all of our livestock died. And yeah, I remember, and the drought was so bad, you had to go stay with that widow and her son, and they were ready to eat their last meal and die, and it took a miracle of God just to keep them and you alive. Yeah, that was so cool how you did that, Elijah. Great faith. Good job. And I jest, but it was serious. Three and a half years of drought. It was dry last year for one summer. Imagine three and a half years with no rain and no snow. And then if we're thinking, well, that's pretty harsh, God, really? Three and a half years of drought? I mean, yeah, they were bad, but were they that bad? Can't forget, God breaks the drought when they come in repentance. So instead of wondering and marveling at that God would do this, we should marvel that it took three and a half years of drought, no rain or snow, to bring Israel to repentance. It's an incredible amount of affliction that it took to break them of their pride and bring them back to God. And that's the same thing for what we see in James here. Someone who's so set in their sin that it takes a debilitating sickness, leaving them bedridden, that that's what it takes to bring them back to God. So this is very serious but thankfully, God is faithful to use this correcting affliction to bring us out of it. Otherwise, Israel nor us would have any power, way, or ability to remove ourselves from our own sin because it traps us so thoroughly. So I won't verbatim read the rest of this passage. I encourage you to study it sometime. But Elijah prays for drought. Drought occurs. Ahab goes out to look for grass to possibly save some of his horses and mules, which is really important if you're a king in the Middle East and you're engaged in warfare. So it's a national crisis. Goes out looking for grass, and instead he finds Elijah. Then we have Mount Carmel and the prophet, the prophets of Baal. So Ahab and Elijah go up to the mount, and there's the testing of the offerings, one to Baal, one to God of Israel. And as we've most likely all heard this story before, Elijah's sacrifice is consumed in fire, showing approval, and the altar of Baal is not. <clears throat> Sorry, let me grab this really quickly. Ahab sent for all the children of Israel, gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. How long will you falter between two opinions? So the entire nation is gathered here, and Ahab is here as well. Then there's the testing. Choose one bowl for yourselves and prepare it first for your many. Call in the name of your God, but put no fire under it. They test it, and they try and get Baal to light the sacrifice on fire, and he doesn't. And Elijah asked God, and the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust. This is 1 Kings 18.38. Then in verse 41, Elijah says to Ahab, Go 
go up, eat and drink, for there's a sound of abundant rain. Kind of funny thing to say in the middle of a drought, huh? Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went to the top of Mount Carmel. And they go and they see the cloud, and he says to his servant, Go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot, and go down before the rain stops you not. So they're up on the mountain, going down to the city, because the rain is coming and the drought is broken. So what repentance has happened for this to occur? After the testing, verse 39, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. There's Elijah and his one servant up there. He did not capture and kill these hundreds of people. And Israel is in repentance. The Lord, he is God. Ahab's here too, in charge of all of his people. So he listens to Elijah, and they kill all of these prophets. That's the repentance. So the sin has been identified, and now it is being removed from the land. And then immediately, before they've even gone down to the city, God breaks the drought and ends their affliction. And Ahab goes on to sin more. Um, but we do see this repentance and God being faithful to bring affliction onto the people who belong to him but have strayed from him. This parallels our passage exactly, and so this isn't a random example, but it's a perfect illustration to help us understand the healing of this guilt sickness. When you're training a dog or a horse or a child or anything else, use signals and we use those signals to get an appropriate response. So if you've got your bit in a horse's mouth and you pull backwards, tucks their head down, and they know to move backwards. As soon as they start moving backwards, the pressure goes off. It's the same thing. God is sending the negative correctional signal to these people. And as long as it takes, that signal is applied until they break. So I've been learning to ride that summer that's been on my mind. My horse is not like to back up very much. And there was one day she decided to test me. So I had her, had the reins and I was trying to get her to back and I was pulling as hard as I could. And it took a full minute of holding before she finally wore down and took a step back. And then I had to release the pressure and we made so much progress because she's learned, follow the signal, move according to the signal and the correction, the pressure will go off. It's the exact same thing that God did with Israel and the same thing that God does with us. So why was Elijah's prayer so very effective? Was it that his faith was so great? No, and we've already talked about that. Why did this work so well? It wasn't his greater faith, but he prayed according to God's will, just as we read in 1 John. If you want to pray like Elijah, and if you want to pray with the effectiveness and fervorance of Elijah, pray for what the Lord has already promised to do. And it's like, oh, great, thanks. Okay, yep, pray for what God has already said he'll do. That, that's real helpful. How about pray for other things that we don't know? And we don't know what God's going to do. Well, no. God's told us the most important things, and we should pray accordingly. If we pray according to God's will, what he's already promised to do, then everything we pray for will come to pass. And that's the beauty of aligning our will to God's will through prayer. 
And when that happens, we're focused and God's goals become our goals. And when that happens, God works through us to accomplish his goals. And so we have a aligning of wills through prayer. And we should be praying for what God has already promised. You want a bulletproof prayer? Look at the Lord's Prayer. Everything in the Lord's Prayer is something that God has already promised to do. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed or holy, set apart. Correct. That is true. God's name is set apart and holy. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Guess what? It is. And it will be to an even greater extent at the culmination of the kingdom. God is faithful to do that and he's promised that. Give us this day our daily bread. Guess what? He will. He's promised to. He feeds the grass of the field, the birds of the air. He'll feed us who's, who are worth, much, worth more than many sparrows, as Jesus said. Pray according to what God has promised. Forgive us our trespasses. He's promised that he will if you come to him in repentance. What a thing to pray for. As we forgive those who trespass against us. If you want God to forgive you, but you won't forgive others, then you don't really want God to forgive you. Those go together. But he's promised he'll forgive you if you come to him in repentance. Lead us not into temptation. Guess what? He won't, and he's promised he won't. And more than that, he can't, according to earlier in James' epistle. But deliver us from evil. He will, and he's promised to, if you turn to him in repentance and humility. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Guess what? All of those are true. When we're praying the Lord's Prayer, we're reaffirming truth, and we're praying for God to do the things that he's already said he will do. And that is such a surety. And then we learn to rely on God's promises instead of wishing he was doing something that he's not. And we only do that because we don't realize what God is actually doing. So we're impatient, we're misfocused. But we can be refocused and learn patience. The last step in this process of restoration and healing, converting truth, which brings back a wandering brother, verses 19 and 20 in James chapter 5. Brethren, if any one among you wanders from the truth, and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So, there's a correction of errant teaching, beliefs, and behaviors here. The focus is not on God's promises and what God said he will do, but it's on material wealth, worldly concerns, our own physical health, and this leads to the mistreatment of fellow believers as we see throughout the epistle of James where he's correcting people in the church for losing focus and mistreating the people they're supposed to be loving. This converting truth then converts to correct teaching, beliefs, and behavior. This includes waiting patiently for the coming of the Lord, as James exhorts, enduring our afflictions and trials for the maturing of our faith, and enjoying the blessings God has given us and thanking Him for them as we continually maintain communion with God in prayer. Lastly, this truth saves a soul from death and hides a multitude of sins. 
So now we understand that this must be a believer. A huge point of support for that fact is found in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 8. I will read verses 7 and 8 quickly. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. This afflicting sickness that is driven by guilt and only healed through confession must come on someone who is a believer because God is chastising you. If God is not chastising you and disciplining you, you feel no guilt for your sin and you live how you want, disregard the consequences and that doesn't weigh on you, you are not one of God's children and you need to become one, otherwise you will be resurrected to the judgment and not to eternal life. So this weight of chastisement falls on those who belong to God. And we even see that with the example of Israel. They never stopped being God's covenant or chosen people, even though they continually violated what God expected of them and failed to live to the standard and goal that they were supposed to attain to. But God was faithful to return them to where they needed to be through suffering, and he will be faithful to do that with them and with us in the future. We also know that the believer cannot be losing their salvation here. So it can't be, oh, well, if you mess up bad enough and you don't come back, then you'll lose your salvation. We know that's not true, and that would be many sermons <laughs> worth of material as well. Um, but we have to take that and move on. James is a very practical book and not a very theological book in the same way that perhaps Romans or Ephesians might be. So he's not talking about how are we saved and how does this work and what's our relationship with God. He's talking about the practical living out of the Christian walk and how to do that well. And so we see there's a real danger of apostasy for people who look like they're part of the church and walk away having never trusted in Jesus for forgiveness. But here, the status of the believer is proven out in that they do come to repentance and they respond to this affliction that God has played in their life. But to the one who brings back the wandering brother, you've saved his soul from death and covered a multitude of his sins which can only come from repentance and recognizing what we've done wrong. So, the righteous believer does not save his wandering brother any more than Elijah saved Ahab or Israel through his own power. But it's God working through the people of God to bring those who wander back to the truth. And I hope that none of us experience this kind of correcting sickness in our life, not because it's unpleasant, but because it means sin has gone unrepentant to such a degree that it drastic measures are required. But I hope we realize that we all need to be brought back to the truth and we all tend to stray. So this isn't an anomaly like, how did this guy stray from the truth? What's he even doing? How did this happen? No, we have to realize that we're all prone to this and left to ourselves, we would all stray from the truth. And from time to time, we're going to need our brothers and sisters in the church to bring us back to the truth. And when this confessionalism bringing back and looking out for one another in the church is the pattern and walk of our lives, 
then we won't fall into sin and have to have a uh, crippling sickness come into our lives because of our unrepentant guilt. If this is the way we live, confessionalism, restoration, coming back to God and helping one another, then we grow stronger in the maturity of our faith. And we have to be patient and focused in order to do that. To answer our question, what kind of healing should we expect from God? We should expect healing of our souls and salvation when we turn to God in repentance of our sins and trust in the work of Jesus dying on the cross and His blood to cover our sins because He's taken our place. Healing of the soul, you'll be born again, you receive a new heart and your heart of stone will be gone and become a new creation. That spiritual healing is the most important and we can never lose focus of that. The next kind of healing, if you are a believer, resurrection of the body. When we're resurrected into glory, we'll have a permanently healthy, perfect, human, physical body the way God intended it to be, not afflicted with sin and guilt and physical illness, age and crumbling down. Everything will be made right and made new. In this specific case, we can expect healing from restorative affliction when the goal of the sickness is to bring someone to repentance. They come to the elders of the church in repentance, confess their sins, and God removes the sickness from their life just as he broke the drought over Israel. This is the kind of healing that we should be focused on. I hope in continuing to study our Bibles and see what God's Word has for us, we will learn to be patient and we will become more focused and not distracted by earthly concerns that often steer us off course. Would you join me in the Lord's Prayer and may we pray for what God has already promised to do. <clears throat> Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. <clears throat>